Now we come in chapter 6 to something else that's quite remarkable. We have the vow of the Nazarite and then the triune blessing that is given here. Now the vow of a Nazarite was a temporary vow and it was a voluntary vow. Any child of Israel who wanted to become a Nazarite could be. He could do it for life or he could do it for a certain period of time. But it was a vow that a man would take voluntarily. God did not command this. This was something that an individual could do. Now, there were three things that a Nazarite was forbidden to do. Now, let me read chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite to separate themselves to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried grapes. In other words, anything that came from the vine, why, he was to avoid it. We're not talking here about a question of whether it's right or wrong to drink wine. And by the way, may I say this, and I want to say it carefully, and you hear me carefully. The Christian standard is not a standard of right or wrong. The question is, what is the purpose in doing what you're doing? In other words, are you doing what you're doing to please Christ? Do you want to be a Nazarite? Do you want to live for him? That's the question. Somebody comes to me and says, do you think it's right for a Christian to drink wine? My friend, I don't argue that point. I won't argue the right or wrong with you. I want to know, do you really want to please Christ? Wine, actually, in the Scriptures, a symbol of earthly joy. It was to cheer the heart. And Christ made the water into wine, and they said they'd save the best wine until the last. But the whole point is this, that the Nazarite was to find his joy in the Lord. And today there are a great many that find their joy not in the things of God, in the Word of God or in Christ, but they find their joy in the things of the world. A great many Christians are like that. I go to a great many church banquets. In fact, there are certain people I used to have church members. I never saw them any weekday meeting except a banquet. They were always there. I've always felt sorry for those Christians who like to get crumbs like the poor man from God's table. They're just getting crumbs, that's all. They like to go to a banquet. They call it a Christian banquet. And there's nothing wrong with banquets. Don't misunderstand me. But they go there to do the eating. And, of course, it helps them to have a few pious things said. And somebody takes a little verse of Scripture says some sweet things about it, and everybody leaves there feeling very spiritual and very helped and very challenged, and then they just drop right back and live just like they've always lived. I feel sorry for them. Where do you find your joy, friend? I ask you that very personally. Do you have to have the stimulants of this world in order that you can enjoy even Christian things? Or can you really get joy out of studying the Word of God? Does prayer sort of turn you off and not turn you on? My, how many of us today 
think we are really being Christian and spiritual, and all we're doing is we just brought the world into our activities. Now, another thing that he did was, verse 5, it says, "...all the days of the vow of his separation, there shall no razor come upon his head." Until the days be fulfilled in the which he separated himself unto the Lord, he shall be holy, shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. And you'll remember that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:14, it's a shame for a man to have long hair. I wish we could hang that verse out today in many places, public places. I still think it's a shame for a man to have long hair. And when I see some of this long hair some of the men and boys are wearing today, I agree with the Apostle Paul. It's a shame. And therefore, a man must be willing to bear shame for Christ, a lack of dignity. He must be willing to take the place of Christ. You remember he said, I'm no man but a worm. Are you willing to take that place? And then the third thing, he was not to touch a dead body. And notice that's verse 7. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother or for his sister when they die, because the consecration of his God is upon him. Now, he's not to touch a dead body. Why? Well, he's to put Christ first. You remember the Lord Jesus said, you're to forsake father and mother and follow him. That means that he comes first. He has top priority. Now, this is voluntarily. He doesn't command it today to you. But if you want to take a vow and dedicate your life to him, be sure that it's going to cost you something. The vow of the Nazarite was a voluntary vow. This is not something God commanded. He said if there were any of his people who wanted to take a special vow, that is, to do a certain thing, to come in closer to him, they could do this. He didn't require it. It was just here for them. And that is for believers today. And I don't mean just this Nazarite vow. I mean that for believers today, he has a closer walk for you, a closer walk with Jesus if you want it. You don't have to have it to be saved. But believe me, it's sure nice to have a closer walk. And this Nazarite vow was voluntary. It also, by the way, was temporary. However, I think John the Baptist was a Nazarite all of his life. Samson was a Nazarite. There have been quite a few famous ones in Scripture who were Nazarites. Now, there were three things that were no-nos for them. First of all, he was not to drink wine and strong drink. In other words, he was to find his joy in the Lord and not in wine or any concoction down here. And the second thing is he was not to use a razor on his head. Now, this wasn't to make a hippie. This was to make a Nazarite. And the reason was because the Scripture says that it's a shame for a man to have long hair. That's a verse of Scripture that we could give to the hippies, 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen. It's a shame, and it's a lack of dignity for a man to have long hair. It means to more or less take the place of Christ when he said, I'm no man but a worm. It means to take a little old fuzzy, ugly bug or worm. And he was willing to bear shame for God's sake. No man's to be commended for having long hair. Actually, it's sort of womanly, not manly. 
And then we have the third thing. He was not to touch a dead body, even of a loved one. And it meant that he had to forsake father and mother. That was the thing, you remember, the Lord Jesus said. Now, you don't have to do that to be saved. But if you want a closer walk with him, in fact, if you're going to be a missionary today, you'd have to leave your father and mother here and go to a foreign country. You'll find that is something that is required if you're to do extra service for him. And many men have been willing to make the sacrifice for him, and they've enjoyed a closer walk with him. And that is the meaning here. It's very important to see this. It's so important that you can transfer that right over for today. You want to come into a closer walk with him, an act of dedication. Now, you can't consecrate yourself. I hear these consecration services where somebody says, I consecrate myself. You can't do that. Only God can. Actually, what it means is to come to God with empty hands. We offer him nothing. We haven't anything really that he has to have. He takes particular delight in. We're sinners saved by grace. And when we come to him, we just offer ourselves to him, our devotion, our worship, our love, our service, our time. And we're to find our joy in him in the things of God. We are to be willing to bear shame for him. How many people today, I find even in our churches, and I've observed this in churches, there are little cliques. And there are a lot of Christians today, they talk about their consecrated Christians. They wouldn't dare do anything to offend their little clique, find themselves on the outside. And some of them would be better off if they'd get out of the little clique, because that little clique's not of God. You may be sure of that in many ways. And generally, it's a pretty cruel crowd that form these little cliques. And yet, there are those that do not have the strength or stamina to stand up against them at all, and they just go along with the crowd. You couldn't be a Nazarite and do that, of course. And then you must put Christ above loved ones. And these things are pretty important, by the way, as they're presented to us here. Now you find verse 8, and I'll begin reading there. All the days of his separation, he's holy unto the Lord. Now, he's set aside. Now, I'm of the opinion that many of us today are missing a great blessing. Suppose you're going through a particular time of trial, trouble. Why not set yourself aside to God? You're a Christian, and you don't want to get hurt in all of this. You want to live for God, don't you? And so you set yourself aside for God in a very definite way, to walk closer with him. And it'll make the trial, now it won't remove the trial, but it'll make it more bearable, let me say. And he says, take my yoke upon you, learn of me, I'm meek and lowly. And it's nice to be yoked up with him. And so we find here that this is something that a child of God can do today. You're not commanded to do it. It's just something you can do. Now, we are told, and if any man die very suddenly by him, and he hath defiled the head of his consecration, then he shall shave his head in the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day shall he shave it. And on the eighth day shall bring two turtles or two young pigeons to the priest. In other words, you can break this vow. And God is very urgent about having us keep our vows. We saw that in Leviticus, you remember comes up again and again. God 
doesn't require you to take a vow, but when you take one, he expects you to keep it. And so we ought to be very slow to make a vow, even to God. But when we made it, we ought to be very fast about keeping it because he'll hold us to it. I'm of the opinion that a great many Christians today who promised God a great deal never made good, that that explains their sad spiritual plight today. I'm confident of that. I've watched that in my ministry over a period of years. I've watched certain people that, my, how pious they were. Why, they had come to church every Sunday and looked like their halo had just been shined. And you never knew any moment when they're going to sprout wings and fly away. They were so pious. And yet, oh, how they let the Lord down. I've watched that again and again. And then things later on in their lives come up, and their spiritual life is wrecked. How many make shipwreck of their faith today just on that kind of basis? And I've watched it through the years. Friends, if you're going to make an agreement with God, stick by it. He'll bless you in it. Always bless you in it. And this is marvelous. I'm not going into a great deal of detail here because there is a great deal of detail about this vow, and it reveals the fact that God expected it to be followed right to the letter and according to the details of the vow. Now, a great many people say today, oh, I won't make a pledge to God because I might not keep it. Well, I'm of the opinion that one of the reasons a great many people are not blessed financially is because of the fact that they are not willing to put it on the line, let's say, with God. They say, now, look, Lord, I've got this job now, and I'm making so much, and I want to give you so much, and I'll give you this amount, and they pledge it. Then what happens? Well, they see a color TV or a new model automobile, and out goes the pledge, you see. Well, they say, we'll make that up later, and, of course, they never make it up. These are things that I think that we need to be very serious about and very practical about. God's very practical about these matters, and he expects us to be also. And I think a great deal of blessing comes this direction. I think a great deal of blessing is withheld because many do not come this direction. And it's a great spiritual lesson, as you can see here for us today. Now, this section here closes with the triune blessing. This is a blessing that's used at weddings a great deal. At least I've used it at weddings for years. And it's found in verses 24 down through 26. It says, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. That's God the Father. And the Lord make his face to shine upon thee, be gracious unto thee. That's God the Son. And then the Lord lift up his countenance upon thee, give thee peace. That's the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Somebody said, you mean to tell me that there's a trinity here in the Old Testament? Well, here it is. The Lord bless thee. God is the source of blessing. God the Father. And the Lord Jesus is the one made his face to shine upon us. He's the one that became a man, and it's by his grace that we are saved and be gracious unto you. Now, the Lord lift up his countenance upon thee. The only way in the world that you'll ever know him, and the only way in the world that you'll ever be able to come to him and experience the peace of God is through the Holy Spirit, you see, making these things 
real to your heart. So we have here this triune blessing. Now you see, God gives them this blessing now because what has happened? Well, the census has been taken. They now know their pedigrees. They know where they belong. The standards have been raised. They know their standard. They know the standard they are to follow. And they know their particular place in the camp and with their own tribe and with their own family. And we've also seen that the camp has been cleansed. Now they are ready to march. And now God blesses. And this is the only way God can bless. Many churches today are not experiencing the blessing of God. I don't like to say it, but they are trying to march like the soldier that forgot to put his belt on one morning. And I tell you, it's pretty hard to march and carry a gun and not have your belt or your suspenders on. And a lot of churches today are just like that, my friend. They're starting out. Things must be set in order. Paul says, let everything be done decently and in order. And that's for the church. The census is taken. They must know their pedigrees. The standards are raised. They know their standard. The camp is cleansed. Now God blesses. And this is the only way God can bless. And it's a triune blessing. Speaking of the triune God, God the Father keeps us. God the Son makes his face to shine upon us. I'm the light of the world, he said. And God the Holy Spirit gives us peace. What a glorious chapter that is. Now we come to another rather remarkable chapter, and that's chapter 7 here. It's next to the longest chapter in the Bible. Do you know what the longest chapter is? You're right, Psalm 119, all about the Word of God. And here, next to it, 89 verses, and it's all about, you know what? The gifts of the princes, all about what they brought. And if you want to know my personal opinion, this is a pretty monotonous chapter because it's repetition again and again. And what each did, all these princes are mentioned. What each one of them gave is mentioned here. And I wonder if I might take just enough of your time to share. Well, let me begin at verse 11. And the Lord said unto Moses, They shall offer their offering, each prince, on his day for the dedicating of the altar. And he that offered his offering the first day was Nashon, the son of Amenadab of the tribe of Judah. Do you know about him? Well, I don't. If you know anything about him, let me know. I'd like to know about him. This is all I know about this man. But God knew him, and God took note of the gifts that he brought. And his offering was one silver charger. The weight thereof was 130 shekels, one silver bowl of 70 shekels, after the shekel of the sanctuary. Both of them were full of fine flour, mingled with oil for a meal offering, one spoon of ten shekels of gold full of incense, one young bullock, one ram, one lamb of the first year for a burnt offering, one kid of the goats for a sin offering, and for a sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five he-goats, five lambs of the first year. This was the offering of Nashon, the son of Amenadab. Now look, 
Did you find that interesting? I didn't. Nothing more but a grocery list. Then you take up the next one. On the second day, Nethanel, the son of Zuar, prince of Issachar, did offer. And you know what he did? Same thing. Brought the same identical offering. Couldn't you sort of put ditto here? Couldn't the Spirit of God done that? No. You know why? God recorded, the Spirit of God recorded what each of these gave to the Lord. Their names are given you men that, as far as I know, this is all they've ever done. And this whole chapter, long chapter, all of it's about what these men gave to the Lord and everything that they gave, even a spoonful of incense was recorded. Now, does that tell you anything today? I hear a great many people say today, well, you ought to give so your right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing, or vice versa. Well, my friend, a great many people better not let the right hand know what the left hand's doing, because they'd be ashamed of what the left hand's doing, or the right hand either one. They both ought to be ashamed, because they're doing so little for the Lord. But I have news for you. He's recording it. Somebody says, you don't mean that. Well, I do mean that. What do you think this chapter's about? It says here, the Lord Jesus, when he was here, he went one day and sat over the treasury. We've already seen that, you remember, in the Gospel of Luke. And he sat and watched how the people gave. Very nosy, don't you think? What business did he have? He just happened to be the Lord of glory. He was the Lord of that temple. And he watched how the people gave. And the rich, they gave rich gifts. They were generous. He noted that. But the thing he did note above everything else, and he recorded what everyone gave. These were princes here. They were able to give quite a bit. But even when they'd give a spoonful of incense, he put it down. What a marvelous, wonderful thing this is. He recorded everything that was done. And our Lord watched how the rich gave. And then here came this poor widow. And if you want to know the truth, those little coppers that she brought threw down those two little old mites in there. They were in comparison to the richness of that temple, to the ornateness of it, to the wealth of it. What she gave was nothing. She just well stayed home, my friend. She didn't add anything. She didn't help pay for the building. She didn't give anything to the building fund. She didn't do anything to mount to a row of pens. But he didn't think that it was that way. <laughs> he took those copper coins and kissed them into the gold of heaven and said she gave more than anyone else. Now, don't tell me that he doesn't know what you give. I don't like this pious talk about people saying, oh, you know, it's just between me and the Lord. Well, my friend, a lot of folk ought not even let the Lord in on what they're doing because I tell you, he's recording it. He's putting it down, what we're doing for him. And by the way, we're talking about a pretty touchy subject and one that a radio preacher probably ought not to say much about. But what about your spiritual blessings today? Where are you getting them? Are you supporting that? Paul had a great deal to say about those that minister to you of spiritual things. You ought to minister to them of physical things. Now, I can say that because... Actually, you can't minister to me of physical things because I receive nothing from the radio. But the radio has to be paid for. Oh, these stations, 
the managers of them. They're a wonderful men. I've met so many of them. But they do say you've got to pay your bill. And that's the way the world operates. And we have to have the funds to pay for our radio bills. That's just the way it is. And I just get right down to the nitty-gritty and tell you that right now. Because we're talking about this thing, friends. Here is one of the most remarkable chapters that's in the Bible. And it must be 89 verses long. And it's the most monotonous thing I've ever had. But, you know, I think the Lord still likes to look it over. I think he likes to open the books and say, well, look at what this prince gave. And look what this other prince gave. All gave the same, but he took note of it. The generous gifts. And they even gave just a little spoonful of incense. And he recorded it. Just that spoonful of incense. And you've never done anything for him, but he didn't record it. You'll be rewarded for that. That's the basis today. And I don't know why we can't talk about these things more freely because they are certainly here in the Word of God. Now, don't go and get the New Testament Scripture, that cup of cold water that you give in His name. That's for the Great Tribulation period. And the man who gives a cup of cold water to one of the 144,000 in that day will jeopardize his life. And many of them, if it's found out, will be put to death. They'll be made martyrs. So it's not just a little cheap cup of cold water. But I do want to say this, as far as the value is concerned, here it is, that just the cup of cold water, he's going to record it, even if it doesn't cost you anything. He's going to record it. This, may I say to you, is one of the most remarkable chapters that you have in the Scripture. Let me drop way down to 74th verse. And here's another prince. One golden spoon of ten shekels full of incense. My, every one of them he recorded. I marvel at this, and I say that this is without doubt one of the remarkable chapters of the Bible. But I think I say that about every chapter that we come to. This is a wonderful book. We do begin with a light in the first part of the eighth chapter. We have here a light of the lampstand and a lava for the Levites. And that is the message here. We're still part of the cleansing operation in preparation for the wilderness march. They had to be clean, those that were going to follow God and serve God. And it would seem at first that this lamp stands out of place. It belongs back in Exodus, someone would say, where we had the instructions for the tabernacle. But now let's look at it, and I'm reading now. Chapter 8, verse 1 of Numbers. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron, and say unto him, When thou lightest the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light over against the lampstand. And Aaron did so. He lighted the lamps thereof over against the lampstand, as the Lord commanded Moses. And this work of the lampstand was of beaten gold, under the shaft thereof, under the flowers thereof, was beaten work according unto the pattern which the Lord had showed Moses, so he made the lampstand. Now, when we look at this very carefully, we find it's really not out of place at all. The lampstand is described again for us here. It was the most beautiful article of furniture that was in the tabernacle of the seven articles of furniture. We're told here it was made of beaten gold. 
and it was molded, and I ought not to say molded, because actually this was the work of an artisan of shaping it into the form of branches of almonds, and a great almond blossom at the top held the lamps. And it is the most perfect picture of Christ that we have in the tabernacle. The lights up on top represent the Holy Spirit, and the lights reveal the beauty of Christ and the beauty of the lampstand. And the lampstand speaks of Christ, and Christ upholds the Holy Spirit. He sent the Holy Spirit into the world, and the Spirit of God takes the things of Christ and shows them unto us. Now, if you'll notice, we saw last time that the princess brought gifts to God, and it comes between the gifts of the princes and the cleansing of the Levites. In other words, everything must be done in the light of the cross. Everything must be done in the light of the Word of God. We're told that at the very beginning of the church, there were four marks of the visible church. I have a little book entitled, The Spiritual Fingerprints of the Visible Church, and it's Acts 2.42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and in prayers, and in fellowship, and in breaking of bread. I've got them a little out of order, but I have all four of them there. These are the fingerprints of the visible church. And the church has to walk in the light of this. Here is where the church gets its instructions. It's from the Word of God, not from a book of church order or some other place. Now, the lampstand is the light, the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world, and He's revealed in the Word of God. And everything must be done in the light of His presence. And the only place in the world you're going to find out about Him is in the Word of God. Now, beginning at verse 5 and through verse 26, which is the rest of the chapter, you have the cleansing of the Levites, the light of the lampstand, and the laver for the Levites. And the Levites came to the laver for cleansing. That's where they came. They had already been to the brazen altar, which speaks of the cross of Christ, speaks of how God keeps his servants clean. Now, will you notice it? And I'll begin reading here at verse 5. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the children of Israel and cleanse them. And friends, if God's going to use you, he'll have to clean you. He'll have to cleanse you. And he has his own way of doing it. And we're told here, how were the Levites cleansed? Here's what we're told. Thus shalt thou do unto them to cleanse them. Number one, sprinkle water of purifying upon them. That was done at the labor. Two, and let them shave all their flesh. And three, let them wash their clothes and so make themselves clean. Four, then let them take a young bullock with his meal offering even fine flour with oil, and another young bullock shalt thou take for a sin offering. Now, all this is important, and all of this has a spiritual message for us. The Levites are cleansed. Now, they have to be cleansed for service. You remember what God had said about the tribe of Levi? That is, the son of Jacob that came from the tribe of Levi. 
you went way back to Genesis 49, 5, where old Jacob spoke to this boy at that time. He says, "...instruments of cruelty are in thy habitations." They needed to be cleansed, by the way. And now the cleansing of the Levites is at the laver. And actually, the important thing today for the child of God is not how you walk, but where you walk. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. You see, the light and the laver went together here. When you walk in the light, you can see that there's imperfection in your life. And then you go to the laver to remove that. And that's when we confess our sins. Now, notice these four steps that are given here for cleansing. The first one, sprinkle water. You remember Christ washed the disciples' feet? And he told Simon Peter when he drew his feet up and under him, he said, "'If I wash you not, you'll have no fellowship with me. You have no part with me,' which means fellowship. And John explains that over in 1 John. If we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Yes, but when I walk in the light, I see spots. I see things that are wrong in my life. All right, what are we to do then? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ will just keep on cleansing us from all sin. That's when we confess it. And then when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is important, friends. If you are to serve God, you must confess your sins. And this is for believers. The laver is the place for the believer, the saint of God. The brazen altar is the place for the sinner to come to God. Now here, the second thing he's to do, he's to take a sharp razor and he was to shave himself. Now the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it moves right in, divides soul and spirit, bone and marrow. The Word of God can dig down into your life and find things wrong that you didn't know were wrong. And that's again why he says in 1 John, if we walk in the light as he's in the light. You need that sharp razor, you see. You don't think there's a spot on you? Then get out the razor and start using the Word of God. It's a sharp razor. It's light also. Now, we are told something else. The third thing, he was to wash his garments. Now, garments in Scripture speak largely of the habits of life. In fact, a garment's called habit. There's a riding habit and a walking habit, and a baby has a crawling habit. And these are garments that the human race wears, and they're the habits. Well, we have certain habits today, and we need to wash our garments. Many of us need to get rid of some of the habits today that's hurting our testimony, and it will hurt our testimony. Now, there's a fourth thing that he was to do. He was to take a meal offering and he was to take a bullock for a burnt offering, and he's to take another young bullock for a sin offering. Now, these offerings we've already seen speak of Christ, and the burnt offering speaks of who he is. The peace offering speaks of the fact he made peace by the blood of his cross, and the meal offering speaks of the fact of who he is, how wonderful he is, 
and the sin offering speaks of what he's done for us. In other words, all of this cleansing, all of this that's done, is done in the light of the person and work of Christ. He did all of this for us, and he did it in order that we might serve him. Now notice verses 9 through 11. Thou shalt bring the Levites before the tabernacle of the congregation. Thou shalt gather the whole assembly of the children of Israel together. And thou shalt bring the Levites before the Lord. And the children of Israel shall put their hands upon the Levites. And Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord for an offering of the children of Israel, that they may execute the service of the Lord. Now, friends, let's understand this very clearly. Oh, you can sing a solo, you can preach a sermon, you can teach a Sunday school class, you can be an officer in the church, but you're not effective. I'll tell you right now, I don't know who you are, but you are not effective until you walk in the light of the Word of God, until you're cleansed, until you have been to Him for cleansing. You see yourself in the light of the Word of God. You know you come short. And you go and make confession of your sin. And you know He forgives you and He cleanses you. And you use that sharp razor. And I tell you, it'll dig down in the life and take off that which offends today. And then we need to watch our habits if we're going to be used of God. Many a man has let a bad habit ruin his testimony and actually put him out of the Lord's service. I know many men that have been put out because of a bad habit. And then all of this rests upon the person and work of Christ, and we need to recognize that all of this, friends, is done in a very definite way for the service of the Levites. They're to serve. Now we come here to something else we've called attention to before, but we must call attention to it again. It says, verse 14, "...thus shalt thou separate the Levites from among the children of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine." And verse 19, "...and I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and to his sons." And you remember in our Lord's high priestly prayer, he said concerning you and me as believers, he said, "...they were thine, but you gave them me." And the Lord, when he redeemed us, he redeemed us by the blood of Christ. He paid a price. And now he's given us as a gift back to the Lord Jesus Christ. We belong to him. Now, service to him, friends, does not rest upon rules and regulations and law. That's not the way you serve the Lord Jesus. You serve him now because you love him. You're in a new relationship to him. You've been joined to him. You're part of him. And what a thrill it is now to know you're serving Him, and you're not following little rules and regulations. You've been brought to a high place, and you want to please Him. How wonderful this is. Now again, verse 24, I read this and call attention to something we think is rather significant, and I do not want to insist on anything here. This is it that belongeth unto the Levites. From twenty and five years old and upward, they shall go in to wait upon the service of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, at 25 years of age, the Levites were permitted to serve in the tabernacle. But way back in the fourth chapter here, and of course that's not too far back, 
we find out that it was at 30 years of age that they actually entered into the service. It says in verse 30, chapter 4, "...from thirty years old and upward, even unto fifty years old, shalt thou number them, every one that entereth into the service to do the work of the tabernacle of the congregation." Now, this was for the priests. If a man was entering into a priestly work, it was from thirty to fifty. And here it's twenty-five if he was just serving around in the tabernacle, putting it up, taking it down, any kind of service. But you will recall way back in the first chapter, verse 3, if it was for soldier service, it was 20 years of age. And then that raises the question, what is the age of accountability? Now, will you follow me very carefully right at this point? And it may be something that will startle you. Over in the 14th chapter, verse 29, I read, "...God said to them, Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness." And all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number, from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against me. Now, those that were twenty years old and upward had reached the age of accountability. And God held them responsible. And when they murmured and refused to go in at Kadesh Barnea, God said, you'll die in the wilderness. What about the boy, nineteen years old? God let him enter the land. What is the age of accountability? I don't want to insist on this, but I think it's lots older than you and I think it is today. I'm of the opinion that it's much older than we think it is. We think maybe a little child is responsible. I don't think so. Now, the little child can accept the Lord. In fact, there are many on record that at four years of age accepted the Lord. But the thing is, the age of accountability must be somewhere later than that. And I'm of the opinion it would be different for different people. God made it different for the different service he had for himself. Soldier, 20 years. 25, if he was just to work around the tabernacle, if it was priestly service, was 30 years of age. So what age is it? Well, it will be different, I think, from different people. And that's the reason that we ought to try to get boys and girls to the Lord as quickly as we can. That is important, by the way. Now, I come to the ninth chapter, and when we come to the ninth chapter here, we have the Passover and the covering cloud. Now, it's not my intention to dwell on this too much, but there is something here that's quite significant. The children of Israel were to celebrate the Passover in the wilderness. Now, they failed for a long time, it's true, but they were to celebrate it. Let me read chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spake unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they were come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the children of Israel also keep the Passover at his appointed season. Now, they were to remember the Passover in the wilderness. Now, there's given instructions here for what has always been called the little Passover. Now, suppose there was a man that had done something that prevented him from celebrating the Passover at the proper time. Well, here's the example, verse 7. And these men said unto him, We're defiled by the dead body of a man. Wherefore are we kept back, that we may not offer an offering unto the Lord in his appointed season? And Moses said unto them, Stand still, and I'll hear what the Lord will command concerning you. Now, you'll notice here, Moses appealed to God. 
He didn't appeal to the book of church order. He didn't appeal to Robert's rules of order. He appealed to God. And again, I come back to this. We are to appeal to the Word of God. That should be the authority for the child of God. But, of course, there's that element of interpretation. And we need to have a little bit more sensible interpretation, I think, of the Word of God in many areas. Now, let me move on here because I'm very anxious to conclude this. These men made confession of their sin. God said to Moses, "...speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If any man of you of your posterity shall be unclean by reason of a dead body, or be in a journey afar off, yet he shall keep the Passover unto the Lord." the fourteenth day of the second month. Now, not the first month, but a month later, you see. At even they shall keep it and eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. It's delayed, and it's a postponed Passover, as you can see. Now, we have instructions given here that are also very important for the covering cloud. In other words, the cloud was to follow them by day. I shouldn't say follow them they were to follow the cloud. It was to lead them. And it was to be a pillar of fire by night and would be for their light and their protection. Now, let me read this. Verse 15, And on the day that the tabernacle was reared up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, namely, the ten of the testimony, and in even there was upon the tabernacle, as it were, the appearance of fire until the morning. So it was always the cloud covered it by day, and the appearance of fire by night. Now, the children of Israel had a covering cloud. It was the Shekinah glory, and it is this that made them different from any nation. I should say one of the many things that made them different from any other nation. When Paul wanted to identify them, he said, Who are Israelites? That's over in the ninth chapter of the Epistle to the Romans. Who are Israelites? And he mentions here eight different means of identification. And one of them was this, and the glory. They had the glory. To whom pertaineth the adoption. And number two was the glory. And this is it right here. These are the only people that ever had the visible presence of God with them. Now, let me read concerning it. And we are told in verse 18, "...at the commandment of the Lord the children of Israel journeyed, and at the commandment of the Lord they pitched. As long as the cloud abode upon the tabernacle, they rested in their tents." So that Moses is not the one who decided whether they would march today or tomorrow, or whether they'd stay in camp on the third day. God decided that. And we need to recognize that today, that the Lord Jesus Christ is head of the church. He should be the one to lead. He can't even keep up with his church today. That's going its own way. Men are having their own way, making their own decisions. But Christ is still head of his church, and those that are his will follow him. Now, you'll notice that sometimes they stayed in camp several days, several weeks, even several months. They were out there in that wilderness 40 years, you'll recall. Verse 22, Or whether it were two days, or a month, or a year, that the cloud tarried upon the tabernacle, remaining thereon, the children of Israel abode in their tents, and journeyed not. But when it was taken up, they journeyed. You see, when it lifted, when the pillar of cloud lifted of a morning, then they knew that day they were to journey. 
And immediately the Levites went in and they took down the tabernacle. And I have already gone over this before, at least I think I have, of when they were ready to march. Why, the Levites had that tabernacle down, packed up, ready to march. I imagine in 15 minutes to 30 minutes. And they'd put it up just about that quickly in the evening when they came to rest. And the pillow would follow them by day and at night would stop, and then it would become a pillar of fire by night. This was the Shekinah glory that was in the tabernacle that finally lifted up. And John tells us that we beheld his glory. Didn't many see it. That's what he laid aside, apparently, was his glory when he came to this earth. Not his deity, but his glory. And when he comes again, they'll see the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Now, that sign's not for the church, because we were never given a visible presence of God. We are given the inward presence of God, which is the indwelling Holy Spirit in the believer today. What wonderful truth there is here, friends, for us. Now, friends, we've come to this tenth chapter of the book of Numbers, and we have here the instructions concerning the making of two silver trumpets. And I'd like to read this section here because we are going to see them begin the wilderness march now, beginning with verse 11. And the last thing that's given are the trumpets for the wilderness march. And notice how they are to be used. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Make thee two trumpets of silver. Now, two is the number of witness. As you know, it's in the mouth of two witnesses a matters established. Now, these two trumpets were used to move Israel on the wilderness march. And it says, Of a whole peace shalt thou make them, that thou mayest use them for the calling of the assembly and for the journeying of the camps. And when they shall blow with them, all the assembly shall assemble themselves to thee at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation." And if they blow but with one trumpet, then the princes, which are heads of the thousands of Israel, shall gather themselves together to thee. Now, the blowing of one trumpet brought the princes together. Now, there's to be a last trump for the church. And that last trump is the voice of Christ, I believe. It'll be his last call. He's sent out invitation after invitation. His last invitation to a Laodicean church is, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And then the last one, the last trump, he calls his church out of the world. And that'll be the last call. Now here, that one single trumpet, that's the Lord Jesus, brings the princes together. That's bringing them together, and that's the rapture of the church. Now he says, When ye blow an alarm... Then the camps that lie on the east part shall go forward. When ye blow an alarm the second time, then the camps that lie on the south side shall take their journey. They shall blow an alarm for their journeys. And when the congregation is to be gathered together, ye shall blow, but ye shall not sound an alarm. And then it's to be used in going to war, verse 9. And if you go to war in your land against the enemy that oppresseth you, then ye shall blow an alarm with the trumpets. 
I think that's what the children of Israel blew when they went around the city of Jericho. And then verse 10, the fourth use of them, also in the day of your gladness and in your solemn days and in the beginnings of your months, you shall blow with the trumpets. In other words, they denoted certain segments of time and particular occasions that were to be observed. Now, these silver trumpets made of silver, and that is the medal of redemption, this is the redemption call, if you please, and it's a call for redeemed people. And this was the way God moved them on the wilderness march. And that's the way the trumpets were used for the most part here. Blow an alarm the second time, the camps lie on the south side. Blow again, then the camp that lies on the north side, and so on, till they get on the wilderness march. Now, beginning here at verse... 11, through the rest of the chapter, you have them lined up for the wilderness march. And if you have now our notes and outlines, you will note that I have on one page the order by which they marched is given. I want to go over that with you because that's given in this chapter. And then we have on the other side how Israel encamped on the wilderness march. They camped about the tabernacle. Now, let me just read one or two verses, and then we'll get to this. Verse 11, "...it came to pass on the twentieth day of the second month in the second year that the cloud was taken up from off the tabernacle of the testimony. And the children of Israel took their journeys out of the wilderness of Sinai, and the cloud rested in the wilderness." Now, they've been almost two years at Sinai getting the law. Now, instructions for the silver trumpets are given. And the trumpets have been made, and they're blown. And now we find that the children of Israel begin the wilderness march. Now, this becomes very detailed here. And I think I can just take this chart that we have here. And I could only wish all of you have a chart, but I think you can follow us. Now, when the children of Israel were in camp, they encamped about the tabernacle. And the three families of Levi... They were immediately around the tabernacle. To the north was Merari, to the south was Kohath, and back to the west was Gershon. And out in front was Aaron and Moses to the east. Now the camps of the twelve tribes were out beyond that. And you have Judah and Issachar and Zebulun way out in the east. And then you have Dan and Naphtali and Asher, there to the north, and to the south, Reuben, and Simeon, and Gad. And then to the west, you have Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. All right, now, this is the thing that happens. Early in the morning, the children of Israel strike camp because the pillow cloud lifted. Now they've all packed their things. The tabernacle has been taken down. So what do they do first? Well, Moses and Aaron are out in front watching, and the time now has come to move. And what happens? Why, Moses and Aaron give the signal, and the trumpets are blown. It's an alarm. And what happens? The ark comes around, and the ones of the family of Kohath that are carrying the ark, why, they move out in front, for the ark leads on the wilderness march. Christ is to lead his church through the wilderness of this world, you see. And that ark, by the way, speaks of him. So the trumpet now is blown one time. And that's got Moses, Aaron, and the ark out in front. 
Now it blows the second time, and Judah moves out because they are in the east, and they are always moving toward the east, you see. That's always the direction that they move out from and then take their course as they get in the line of march. Issachar and Zebulun march with Judah. And then after that, Gershon and Merari are bearing their part of the tabernacle. And they've got quite a bit of the heavy stuff, let's say, the boards, the bars, and they have all of the coverings. These two families carried that, and now they're in their place. Then the trumpet blows the fourth time, and Reuben, bearing his standard, and Simeon Gad marching under it, they move out. And then the trumpet sounds again, and the Kohathites, they're carrying all the articles of furniture now, except the ark, which has gone ahead. And they are bearing the other six articles of furniture, and they move out. And because the tabernacle is to be carried on the shoulders of the children of Israel. Then the trumpet sounds the sixth time in the tribe of Ephraim. And when the tribe of Ephraim moves out, why Manasseh and Benjamin are marching with it. Then we have the last one, that's the tribe of Dan, and the trumpet's blown, and their standard moves out, and Asher and Naphtali fall under and march after it. Then after that, there is this mixed multitude. Now, this mixed multitude are just a group of folk that we saw before. They didn't know whether they were Israelites or they didn't know whether they were Egyptians. They didn't know whether to go or to stay. And they are really a mixed multitude. Each one's mixed up. One would have a father who was an Egyptian, a mother who's an Israelite, or the other way around. And as a result, well, they didn't know whether to stay with Papa or Mama. But they came along on the wilderness march, and they are stragglers. They're bringing up the rear, if you please. Now, this is the wilderness march. Did you notice that the trumpet blew seven times, and that's what put them on the wilderness march? I wonder if you've noticed something here, that in the book of Revelation, you have the blowing of seven trumpets. And those seven trumpets are connected with the children of Israel and it'll take the blowing of those seven trumpets in the great tribulation period, and God will have moved the children of Israel from all corners of the earth back into that land, just as he's moving them here. The trumpets are connected with the children of Israel, if you please. There are a great many people like to take that last trump that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians and associate it with the last trump in Revelation, and then draw from that that the church is going through the great tribulation period. Well, where do you get that? The last trump in Revelation is the voice of the Son of God. Well, you have that in First Thessalonians, the fourth chapter. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven. He's descending with a shout. His voice is like the voice of an archangel, and his voice is like the sound of a trumpet. You say to me, how do you know his voice is like the sound of a trumpet? Because Revelation 1.10 says, John says, I heard a voice like a sound of a trumpet, and I turned to see. And you know who he saw? He saw the glorified Christ, our great high priest. So his voice is like a trumpet, and that's the trumpet that's going to raise the dead and change the living of those that are his that are in the church. No trumpet is connected with the church. The trumpets are connected with the children of Israel, and it's the trumpets that move them on the wilderness march. And here you have it. It's the trumpets that will bring them from the wilderness world all back into that land. 
Now, this all has a very wonderful spiritual lesson for us, because as they marched on the way, they met Moses' father-in-law. Now, we've heard about mother-in-law jokes, but I don't think I ever heard of a father-in-law joke. But here's one here, and it's not such a joke after all, but I want you to notice it. I'm turning now to verse 29. And Moses said unto Hobab, the son of Reguel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, We are journeying unto the place of which the Lord said, I will give it you, come thou with us, and we will do thee good, for the Lord hath spoken good concerning Israel. Now, that's a beautiful passage right there, and it's too bad Moses didn't stop with that, but he didn't, and we'll see that in just a minute. But that's the picture of the church also today. We're pilgrims and strangers in this world today. We're strangers here. This is a wilderness we're in. I guess many of God's children think they're in a paradise. They think they're back in the Garden of Eden. But we're marching through a wilderness today, and we're on the way to the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are going to be in his presence someday. Now, our invitation is the invitation Moses give. Come and go with us. And if you're listening to me today and you're not a child of God, by faith in Jesus Christ, you can join the party. It's a great one, by the way. And we're marching. We're on the way to go into the presence of Christ. We're not a group that are marching because we're better than anyone else, because we're not. We're sinners, sinners saved by the grace of God. And if you see yourself as a sinner and you need a Savior, turn to him by simple faith, trust him, join the march. Now, there are a great many people who want to march today. Here's a march I'd like to get you in on, by the way. This is a good one. It's no protest. It's a salvation march. It's redemption march. It's the march that we are marching to Zion. Not earthly Zion, but a heavenly, the city of Jerusalem that's coming down from God out of heaven, dawn like a bride for the bridegroom. Now, Moses, though, kept on talking, and he said something maybe he shouldn't have said. He said unto him, I'll not go, but I will depart to mine own land and to my kindred. And Moses' father-in-law, old Hobab, says, I don't want to go with you. That's a typical father-in-law for you, isn't it? And that's not quite a good father-in-law joke, but the old man said, I won't go with you. I don't want to go with you. I'm going home. And notice, though, what Moses said. And he said, Leave us not, I pray thee, for as much as thou knowest how we are to encamp in the wilderness, and thou mayest be to us instead of eyes. And I want to say to you right here that I don't quite understand Moses. Hasn't God made it clear to Moses that the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night and that that ark was leading them? All of that speaks of Christ and that he's the leader. And now Moses is suggesting to his own father-in-law. He's saying to him, you come and go along with us and be eyes. The old man had been raised in that desert of Midian. He was a Midianite. He knew that area. He could have been a great help, I'm sure. But you see, they're not to depend on natural means. This old man doesn't know the way God wants them to go. And unfortunately today, the church is listening to the voice of the world today. The church is listening to the voice of experts today. The church is listening to the men who have no really spiritual discernment. And as a result, church is being led down the garden path today and being brought in many places to a very sad place. What a responsibility rests upon church leaders. 
ministers, church officers. Are you sure you have the mind of the Lord? Are you sure Christ is the head of the church? Are you sure that he's leading you and guiding you? Or today are you saying to some man, come and be eyes for us. I want to listen to you and not listen to the Lord. How tragic it is to see that. And Moses made a mistake here, friends, in doing this. Moses could make mistakes, by the way. And the interesting thing is he could record them here. If some of us had made these mistakes, we wouldn't have mentioned these things. Now, will you notice? It shall be, if thou go with us, it shall be that what goodness the Lord shall do unto us, the same will we do unto thee. And they departed from the mount of the Lord three days' journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them in the three days' journey to search out a resting place for them. Now, God was leading them, you see. And he's making it clear to them that he was searching out the land. And the cloud of the Lord was upon them a day when they went out of the camp. And it came to pass when the ark set forward that Moses said, Rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thee. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, unto the many thousands of Israel." This was the ritual, apparently, that Moses followed of a morning and again of an evening when they were on the wilderness march. 